Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, this is Kim of Black Free Thinkers. Again, you're speaking with Kim from Black Free Thinkers. And we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. I'll say that one more time. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. We're just here to pass along some information and to encourage critical thinking, you know, in every area and aspect of your life. Oh, man, and to pass along some knowledge and encourage you to go out and do some research on your own. The information is out there. Come on, guys, we can do this. We're already making some positive, wonderful changes in this life and you know, I couldn't be happier. You know, things are going quite well. So, hey, good morning. Good morning, everybody. So, let's see here. What has happened since we spoke last? Well, we kicked two prosecutors out of office. And we will get to that. But before I get started on any of that today, let me go over some books tell you guys what I'm reading now. All right. So the first one is The Racial Contract by Charles W. Mills. Again, The Racial Contract by Charles W. Mills. All right. So on the show, you heard me, you know, I always make references to social contracts, which is what this is. And basically with this racial contract, it shows a hierarchy as to how things work. And I'm going to give you all some of the spark notes to that in a minute, but I just wanted to give you the title to that book. The second one is The Half That Has The Half Has Never Been Told. Again, The Half Has Never Been Told. Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism. We'll try it again because my tongue got tied. The Half Has Never Been Told. Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism by Edward Baptist. Again, that author is Edward Baptist. This third one is by Manning Marable, and the title is How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America. Again, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America by Manning Marable. After that, (laughs) I know, like, damn, you know, yeah, I keep Amazon in business, you guys. This book here, which is, you know, I haven't even started on it yet because I'm on a racial contract, and I'll read some, and then I have to put it down because I'm getting angry. Then go back and read some more, and then I have to put it down, take a nap because I'm angry. You know, that that one book, that is explosive. Anyway, this one here, Racism Without Racist. Again, Racism Without Racist. Colorblind Racism and the Persistence of Racial Inequality in America. The author is Eduardo Bonilla Silva. So Eduardo Bonilla Silva. So Racism Without Racist. And it's talking about colorblind racism and the persistence of racial inequality in America. And this last book I'm going to give you guys is so many, but here, this one is titled The Origins of the Urban Crisis. 
again, the origin of the urban crisis, race and inequality in post-war Detroit. Now, you know, it's not just in Detroit. This has been happening all across the country. The author of this is Thomas Grew. Again, Thomas Sugru, S-U-G-R-U-E. I'm probably killing his name. Please accept my apologies, okay? <laughs> so those are like five of the books that, you know, I'm reading right now, and the half has never been told. That's a big, big book. I'm also um, reading The Arrogance of Fate of Religion or something like that. I don't have it in front of me. That's a hard book, um, hardback. And it's a hard book to take in, too. It's really thick. I've been reading it off and on for a year, but, you know, I really haven't said or done anything with it. I need to start taking notes on that again. So, anyway, how's everybody doing today? All right, I'm going to assume that you're doing just fine. So, like I said, a lot has happened since we last talked, which was last Sunday. You miss me? So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's been interesting. You know, life has been very interesting um, the past few weeks. But particularly this past week, trying to set everything down without setting off an avalanche on my nightstand here. So, all right, so I wanted to give you all some of the spark notes to um, the racial contract. Now, all right, so we've talked about, and I've talked about racial hierarchies. You know, are you quite, have you been researching this? That's my question to you. You know, so... um, All right, sorry about that. So, you know, you've heard me talking about racial hierarchies on the show. And, you know, Venn grams, um, Venn diagrams showing, you know, who's truly white and who are the honorary white people. And it's so funny because sometimes people get upset when I say honorary white people. Okay, we'll call you ethnic whites. You know, either way, it's the same thing. And, you know, even then, some people take offense to that. And, you know, one of the simplest examples you can give to people regarding, you know, that particular classification, and, you know, pay attention yourself. When you go to the grocery store and you're looking for certain things, like, you know, let's say you want some matzo balls, you know, a Jewish, you know, um, dish. You have to go into the ethnic white aisle. It says it right there. I didn't make this up. I didn't create it either. But pay attention. Pay attention to what's happening around you. Pay attention to these different classifications. And, you you know, you won't only find Jewish, you know, products in that aisle. You'll find some Irish products. You'll find some, you know, Polish. Just, you know, and they have a whole Hispanic aisle by itself. The Hispanic aisle is a little bit different. But, you know, pay attention to what's going on around you. You know, it's it's, it's really interesting. So, anyway, The Racial Contract by Charles Mills. Um, Guys, 
So far, so good. It's an explosive book. I'm sitting here reading some of the things, some things I knew, but I'm learning a whole bunch of new stuff, too. And so this is one of the reasons why we encourage you guys to go out and read these books. Sometimes you can go and you can read them on Google Books. I used to post that type of stuff all the time, and then I stopped. But I may start doing that again. Um, We'll see. So, you know, I'm going to give you all a couple of quotes from here, from this, you know, from this book. But, you know, basically what it's talking about is, you know, there's a certain consent or expectation that of white citizens, you know, in this country, you know, and basically, you know, they expect white people to give their consent kind of like an implied contract, if you will, but, you know, their consent, you know, is is needed in an effort to continue to oppress people of, you know, other, you know, ethnic backgrounds, if you will. So let's see here. It says, correspondingly, the consent expected of the white citizens is in part conceptualized as a consent, whether explicit or tacit, to the racial order to white supremacy, what would be called whiteness. Here's another quote. To the extent that those phenotypically, genealogically, and culturally categorized as white fail to live up to the civic and political responsibilities of whiteness, they are in dereliction of their duties as citizens. Here's another one. From the inception, then, race is no way an afterthought, a deviation from ostensibly racist Western ideals, but rather essential shaping constituent of those ideas. Come on. You know, it's interesting. Here you go. We live in a world which has been foundationally shaped for the past 500 years by the realities of European domination and the gradual consolidation of global white supremacy. So for those that are interested in, you know, or may have the book, go to page 14 and 20. That's where most of those quotes came from, you know. But, yeah, we do live in a world built upon an implied racial contract. And um, it's just interesting You know, what was even more interesting was when I did a show a few weeks ago and had a couple of callers and, you know, hey, guys, thanks for calling in. And um, one particular caller, Pianchi, you know, um, again, some disagreements, you know, and that happens. Not everybody is going to agree with you. But, you know, I went back and read his little comment. And, you know, the whole thing is interesting because, again, there have been exceptions made in this country for, you know, you know, other people or certain immigrants when they come to this country. Now, you know, what's interesting is um, when I talked about this, Bianchi was like, there are no, you know, programs readily available to white immigrants that aren't available to, you know, black Americans. That's not true. And like I told him, go back and listen to the show where we had Jeffrey Perry on. And, you know, for those of you that are, you know, wanting to look it up, go and look up the Lautenberg Amendment Legacy, L-A-U-T-E-N-B-E-R-G, Lautenberg 
amendments. Okay? Go and look that up. Because what it says is that certain immigrants will be accepted into this country without condition. Other immigrants, not so much. And with those particular, you know, particular immigrants that they allow in without any real vetting, if you will, they are automatically eligible for a number of different programs. Whereas the rest of us, whether you're an immigrant you know, from the wrong country or the wrong religion coming here and those of us in this country that are, you know, considered people of color, you got to jump through hoops to get a lot of those things if you get through it. And this is, you know, if you, you know, if you get access to the programs. And this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about, you know, how you hear some of these people screaming out states' rights, states' rights, state rights, because the federal money is then passed to the states, and then the states have the, you know, autonomy, if you will, to distribute those funds at their discretion, you know. And so this is why, you know, I, I keep talking about these things, you know, about these buzzwords, these trigger words, you need to pay attention because when that money is, you know, basically delegated to the different states, they discriminate against people. You know, one program that I tell you, know, a couple of them, you have LINK, which is food stamps. You have Section 8, which is a housing program, and, you know, many others. The federal government gives the same amount to these states year after year after year. What the state does is work with the local municipalities or the local housing authorities or, you know, the local offices. And, you know, there are incentives for them to kick people off of these programs. So, you know, you have people being kicked off of food stamps, off of LINK, getting kicked out and having their Section 8 snatched. But the, the, the government, the state government still receives that money. But then they get to use that money for what they want, some of their little, you know, um, pet projects. So it's just important for you guys to understand that. And this is why we say all politics are local. You need to understand what's happening in your local political system. And for these notes, you know, I picked them up on script. And I'll post this a little bit later. I know I always say I'm going to post it, and I haven't been doing it lately. But, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and post this a little bit later. But, um, you know, the whole thing, like I said, it's, it's really interesting how everything has come about. Now, I know I have some people out there that do not believe in voting. You feel that your vote doesn't count. Yes, it does. And what I must say, I must, you know, take my hat off to the organizers and activists and protest, protesters across this country, and especially here in Chicago as well as Cleveland, Ohio. So some of you may not have heard about what happened on Super Tuesday. You know, well, you probably heard, you know, you know Trump won some, Hillary won some, you know, so on and so forth, and Rubio suspended his his campaign. But in Chicago, as well as Cleveland, um, you have had, you know, a lot of civil unrest, if you will, and you've had prosecutors who have failed to bring these police officers to justice. Well, let me tell you, in Chicago, 
we had this campaign called Buy Anita, B-Y-E Anita. And guess what? She went bye-bye. We voted her right the hell up out of office. Now, some of you are probably sitting over there saying, so what? No, honey, that's power. That's power. That is how you fucking acquire power. We said we were going to get rid of her, and guess what? She's gone. And this is something that should be happening across the country. You know, so, again, we got rid of Anita Alvarez in um, Cleveland, Ohio. They got rid of um, Tim McGinty. He lost his reelection bid. You got to remember, you have these are incumbents, and they lost their bids for reelection. That's big news. That's big news. That is absolutely freaking phenomenal. And, you know, this should be happening all across the country. And what I'm saying to you guys is get out there, get to voting, you know, get these people up and out the house. You know, I drove, I took one of my neighbors with me when I went to go vote. You know, why not? And so, you guys, get out here. It's a lot that we need to do. And, you know, there are some people um, that support Hillary. There are some people that support um, um, Bernie. And, you know, interestingly enough, I've seen some black people out here supporting Trump, which is, you know, kind kind of the core of the show. And I will be getting back to that. But, again, it's really important for you guys to understand how powerful and in how meaningful it was for Anita Alvarez to lose her bid for re-election in Chicago, you know, state's attorney of Cook County, and Tim McGinty lost his re-election bid. So in, in Cleveland, Ohio, you know, so guys, go, you know, go and read something about it and, and get out here and then do something about it. Not only get registered to vote, but show the hell up. And, you know, this needs to be even more expanded. You know, in Illinois, you had a lot of black preachers that that <laughs> decided to back the Republican governor. Now, mind you, we had a, you know, Democrat governor initially, and he was the incumbent. And basically, they sided with the Republican governor because they felt that that particular Republican governor would be able to address certain needs. Now... I don't know if you all have been paying attention to Illinois. We still don't have a budget passed. You know, you have, you know, Chicago State University, which they're trying to shut down. That is, you know, um, a, a college, a university that's within the city, within the inner city. It's right there on the south side of Chicago in the middle of, you know, a predominantly black neighborhood. So if they don't have that, you know, there are a lot of people that graduated from college because they were able to go to Chicago State and even some of the, you know, junior colleges within, you know, the city of Chicago colleges system. And it's important that we keep that university open. But, you know, look at what's happening. And so, you know, again, it is this is a big deal. Guys, it's showing the power of these grassroots community organizations and they're organizing 
see, that's the thing that you all need to understand. There is power in organizing. I'm telling you, open your eyes, pay attention. And, you know, um, the Black Lives Matter people, they came through. They came through. I have to give them credit. They came through on this. And so, um, you know, again, you know, basically what was happening with these two particular politicians is that, you know, these different, you know, groups and organizations and activists, they kept highlighting what was happening within, you know, our particular communities in regards to, you know, state violence and neglecting these, you know, high-profile cases. And, you know, especially with Alvarez, you know, withholding the tape of Laquan McDonald until after Rahm Emanuel was reelected, you know. And, again, we it's alleged that there was some collusion there. And, you know, I'm not going to go against that. You know, I have my suspicions for certain things, but we almost voted Rom out. We forced a runoff. Guys, there's power in this. There is power in that vote. And, you know, we're trying to get you guys to understand that the local level politics affects you, has a direct impact on your life. You need to know who these people are. You need to hold them accountable. And, you know, again, they need to know we will vote you out of office. You know, some of these folks are walking around now on eggshells because they don't know who we're going to go after next. And so, you know, the thing about it is that for an incumbent prosecutor to lose their bid for reelection is rare. It's rare. Some of these people are in these positions for life. And, you know, what's so unfortunate about, you know, many of our communities is that we'll keep electing the same people over and over because we recognize the name. And and they've been in office for so long. And, you know, now with the technology, we're able to compare their records. We're able to, you know, find the glaring errors. So, you know, right here it says in this article, about 95% of incumbent prosecutors won re-election and 85% ran unopposed in general elections, according to data from nearly 1,000 elections between 1996 and 2006, analyzed by Ronald White of Wake Forest University School of Law. You can find that on Vox. And let me tell you, you know, a lot of people don't realize the prosecutor's role and how much power they have. And I'm just going to read a little bit more to you here, but it says, yet prosecutors are enormously powerful in the criminal justice system. They decide which laws will actually be enforced with almost no checks on that power outside of elections. For instance, in 2014, Brooklyn District Attorney Ken Thompson announced that he will no longer enforce low-level marijuana arrests. Think about how this works. Pot is still very much illegal in New York, but the district attorney has flat out said that he will ignore an aspect of the law and is completely within his discretion to do so. Think about that. And, you know, a prosecutor is also often the only public official standing between a defendant and prison time. More than 90% of criminal convictions are resolved through a plea agreement 
so by and large, prosecutors and defendants, not judges and juries, have almost all the say in a great majority of cases that result in incarcerations or some other punishment. Think about that. Think about it. That's power. That is power, you guys. So, you know, hey, my hat is off to these organizers, you know, because Chicago and Cleveland, they meant that shit and voted them right the hell up out of office. This is something you all should be proud of. This is definitely something that, you know, we should be proud of, that, you know, we got out there. We said we were going to vote them out, and that's exactly, you know, what happened. So, you know, it's interesting because um, Tamir Rice's mom isn't endorsing any of these politicians. And me personally, I feel that that is the correct, you know, position to have at this time. Because, you know, with a lot of these politicians, you know, they're giving us a lot of lip service which is why I'm not necessarily endorsing anyone specifically. But, you know, I guess when I cast my vote, you know, I guess some people would say that's an endorsement. But, you know, one thing I can tell you who I didn't vote for, I didn't vote for Donald Trump, you know. And so it's it's been um it's, it's been interesting. But the power of these grassroots movements, guys, I mean, think about it, Ferguson. Down in Missouri, where all this shit jumped off. I mean, you know, this this rage and this anger and this passion had been festering for a long time, bubbling over here and bubbling over there. But when when that crazy shit went down in Ferguson and that cop killed Mike Brown and left him there for four hours, that was the spark, you know, of this new human rights movement. You know, I believe that it goes beyond just civil rights, that we have to look at the bigger picture. And, you know, this is a human rights movement. And so what happened down in Ferguson, if you all weren't paying attention, basically, you know, initially the the, the powers that be, they didn't want to accept federal oversight of their criminal justice system. But they went on and buckled under the pressure. It was a lot of pressure being put on them to, you know, adhere to the federal oversight. And it was right during the, you know, um, election period during our Super Tuesday, you know, and they gave in. And for those who aren't familiar, Donald Trump went to St. Louis and had a rally, and there were some, you know, disturbances there as well. And, guys, just, I mean, think about this. You know, we're making them accept the federal oversight. We're voting people out of office and putting in people who we believe will hold our best interests. But if not, then they got to go too. Okay, so again, we want you guys, you know, give yourself a hand because that was powerful extremely important. And that's one of the things that, you know, when I talk about these things, I talked about, you know, being tactical and strategic because we've been studied. You know, we've been studied all the way down to our toenails. You know, the powers that be pretty much know how we're going to react to certain situations. 
because that's been the playbook, you know, for all of these years. And we have to do things differently. I mean, some of the issues that we're talking about now, if you go back and read some of the works of W.E.B. Du Bois and other thinkers of that time period, they were dealing with the same issues then. And this is why we speak specifically to institutional and systemic racism and how this system has to be dismantled and deconstructed. We don't have the power to do it. And we didn't create it. White people did. And so, you know, again, you know, I my hats are off to, you know, our allies that are out there. You know, we needed their help, and they've been there in our corner. So, guys, I mean, we're doing good. We have this momentum going. Let's, let's continue with it. Let's continue on because, you know, this this right here, you know, I'm just, like I said, I'm just proud of what we were able to accomplish, you know. So, anyway, you know, it's, you know, it's kind of overwhelming. I mean, it makes me proud to know that, you know, we're actually making change and we're thinking different and we're, you know, utilizing, you know, the tools and, you know, the information that's readily available to us. You know, um, right now in Chicago, we're trying to get them to, you know, put a citizen's, you know, um, civilian on the board for oversight of the police department. And so it's a lot of things going on. Get involved with some of these local organizations in your area. And like I said before, there there's an organization for everybody. You know, some people are like, oh, I can't find anyone who believes or think, thinks like I do. Trust me, they're out there. You just have to do a little investigating and find them. And then also understand, you know, they're, you're not going to agree 100% on everything. That's fine. That's fine. That's how you stay sharp. You know, you know going back and forth, you know, uh, just, you know, having these hard conversations very hard conversations. And speaking of a hard conversation, I posted an article on my wall from the National Review. And yeah, I know some of you are out there rolling your eyes because this is a highly conservative, um, you know, periodical or website. And they had an article called Working Class Whites Have Moral Responsibilities. And this was in the defense of Kevin Williamson, Right. So I'm not going to get into the Kevin Williamson thing because I don't really want to. And I'm going to talk about some of the things that were said in this article. Now, I had to read this article three times before it fully registered with me because the first time I'm like, okay, I can't believe my lying eyes, right? And the second time it was like, oh, shit, right? And the third time, it was like, whoo-hoo, somebody finally said it. So this is a critique of working class and poor whites written by another white person. Now, mind you, again, within, within whiteness, there is a hierarchy. And only true white people are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. So you need to keep that in mind. 
and, you know, tie that back into history. Because Irish people were never considered white until a little bit later. You know, same thing with Italians, same thing with Jewish people, same thing with, you know, Dutch people, so on and so forth. Those are the ethnic whites, okay? And, again, notice it has the word ethnic in front of it. So, and, you know, like I said, you know, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, those are the ones that come from Germany, England, and Western Europe. This is why you always hear people talking about that Western or what have you. So that's that's basically what it means. But let me read you. <laughs> let me read you know a passage from this particular article. Um, and you know, with this here, um, basically, it's talking. You know, they got anyway. <laughs> I don't even know where to start because, like I said, this article floored me. And that doesn't happen very often. But, you know, they're talking about Donald Trump and the support that he's getting from working class and poor whites. And, of course, in this article, they're calling them the victim class. You know, and so I want to kind of differentiate between this particular victim class and then people of color. This victim class, they're called a powerful voting block. Right, and that's part of this article. While we're called thugs and criminals and troublemakers, and you know, and you know, man, look, okay, so I'm gonna go ahead and read it. It is immoral because it perpetuates a lie that the work that the white working class that finds itself attracted to Trump has been victimized by outside forces. It hasn't. The white middle class may like the idea of Trump as a giant pulsing humanoid, middle finger held up in the face of the cathedral. They may sing hymns to Trump, the destroyer, and whisper darkly about globalists, an odious stupid term, the establishment, but nobody did this to them. They fail themselves. If you spend time in hard scrabble, white upstate New York or eastern Kentucky or my own native West Texas, and you take an honest look at the welfare dependency, the drug and alcohol addiction, the family anarchy, which is to say the whelping of human children with all the respect and wisdom of a stray dog, you will come to an awful realization. It wasn't Beijing. It wasn't even Washington, as bad as Washington can be. It wasn't immigrants from Mexico, excessive and problematic as our current immigration levels are. It wasn't any of that. Nothing happened to them. There wasn't some awful disaster. There wasn't a war or a famine or a plague or a foreign op occupation. Even the economic chances of the past few decades do very little to explain the dysfunction and negligence and the incomprehensible malice of poor white America. So the gypsum business in Garbut, Garbage or Garboot, whoever the hell this is, ain't what it used to be. There is more to life in the 21st century than wallboard and cheap sentimentality about how the man closed the factories now. The truth about these dysfunctional downscale communities is that they deserve to die. Economically, they are negative assets. Morally, they are indefensible. 
Forget all your cheap theatrical Bruce Springsteen crap. Forget your sanctimony about struggling Rust Belt factory towns and your conspiracy theories about the wily Orientals stealing our jobs. Forget your goddamn gypsum, and if he has a problem with that, forget Ed Berg too. The white American underclass is enthralled to a vicious, selfish culture whose main products are misery and used and used heroin needles. Donald Trump's speeches make them feel good. So does Oxycontin, and what they need isn't an isn't analgesics, literal or political. They need real opportunity, which means that they need real change, which means they need U-Haul. I've never seen a white person dress down white working class and poor people like that ever. I mean, even with some of these whiteness scholars, you know, they've made their commentary, but it was not like that. And when I first read it, you know, again, I was a little surprised by the tone. You know, I had to go and read it a few times. And when I posted it, I said, I think I need a drink and a nap after reading this. And it's a lot more to this. But, you know, one of initially, like I said, I was surprised. And I took, you know, a little bit of offense to it. And the reason why is the same white, white working class and poor whites, they've used that same rhetoric on people of color, particularly black people. This is what we see and this is what we hear. And this is how it makes us feel. And so for those of you that are feeling some kind of way about that, multiply that by 100. Now you know how we feel. Let that sink in. And so, you know, guys, you got to read this. You got to read it. I'll give you the title of the article again. <laughs> working white class, sorry, working class whites have moral responsibilities in defense of Kevin Williamson. And even with that, there's a link to the original article, you know, and um, go back and read this. I mean, this simply floored me. And it's talking about the generations of working class and poor whites and how they have victimized themselves. Because you all have seen these studies in which it shows that white people feel like they are more discriminated against than blacks and Latinos and natives and Asians, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is absolutely amazing. You know, I've never seen a dress down like this, ever. So you got to read the original, you know, piece as well for it to make total sense to you. And it's going to take a while to let this sink in. And, <laughs> you know, this this was a hard-ass article. This was a hard, hard-ass article. And I was like, all righty then. So, yeah, go on and read that, you know, because... I I can't even do it any justice. Just go and read that, guys. You know, and, <laughs> and if you want something else to fun read, go and um, it was an article in the New York New York Times, 
and it was, you know, the title of it was, Will the Democrats Ever Face an African-American Revolt? They should. Just not Trump or Cruz or Kasich. All three of them are scary. All three of them are scary, but... You know, that's one of the reasons why I do these shows, because it wasn't too long ago that, you know, that black people were voting Republican. That switched over. There was only a change during the New Deal. So go back and read and study and understand the history. And again, you know, with the Democrats, also known as the Dixiecrats in those days, a lot of racism, a lot of racism, and man, I'm telling you, you know, you know, I did a few shows on the New Deal, and I really don't think I did it any real justice because I left a lot of things out that um definitely needs to be a part of it, and so, you know, guys, like I said. It would be to your benefit to go out and read and understand and know what's going on and how all of this came about. You know, some of the issues and the policies that, you know, we are dealing with and suffering under, not all of that was implemented in 1492 when Christopher Columbus discovered an already occupied America. But, you know, um, it's important. But I thought this was a pretty interesting article. I'll post it on my wall because um, I just think it's interesting, you know, and I think we owe it to ourselves to sit and, and make these people earn our votes, make them earn it, make them change these policies make them deal with this wealth inequality gap, make them deal and dismantle white supremacy. Because they're not going to do it. You want to know why? Because it benefits them. And so what's interesting with, you know, what's happening now with, you know, Trump supporters and, you know, going back to the Tea Partiers and, if you go back, and especially with the Tea Partiers, when they first, you know, broke out into the scene, they were talking about needing jobs for white men. And, you know, that basically is one of the main tenets that they were espousing when, <laughs> when they came out to the scene. And so, you know, it goes back to white privilege. So, again, what's happening now is that, you know, now that we're competing globally and a lot of these jobs, in particular manufacturing jobs, they've left this country and have gone other places, South America, Mexico. Again, thank you, NAFTA. Thank you, Bill Clinton. You know, there are a lot of disgruntled and disenfranchised white people. And so this is where some of this anger is coming from. And it's just is absolutely amazing. You know, it's, it's disturbing, you know, in that kind of way. But 
again, let me go ahead and pop some bubbles. Those manufacturing jobs are never coming back. Understand that. Accept it. It's not that we can't create more manufacturing jobs. That can be done. But the manufacturing jobs, it's over. Those aren't coming back. And what we need to do is hold these corporations accountable. I saw a commercial for Hillary Clinton, and she was in Wisconsin, and she was talking about JCI, which is Johnson Controls, and how the government gave Johnson Controls, you know, a bailout. And once Johnson Controls, you know, once they got back on their feet, they sent their services overseas because it was cheaper. Now, see, that's the thing that's happening. You have companies like JCI, you have GE, and a number of other corporations. And what they do is their departments that are profitable, they send those overseas so that they don't have to pay taxes on it. And the departments that bleed money, which means they're in the red, they leave those here so that they can get a tax break. Think about it. Just need for you guys to pay attention to what's going on and and get some of the basic, understand some of the basic economics, whether it's micro or macro, and 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 its effects on you know this this country. So again, I'm just looking at all of this. You know, I can go in so many different directions with this, but. We shall see. You know, and again, like I say, you know, some of this stuff I'm learning <laughs> like everybody else, you know, because there was this article, and I thought it was interesting. I didn't post it on my wall because I had to read it a few times and then do some research. But the title of this article, and it's coming from the Daily Beast, the title is, There Aren't Enough White Voters for GOP to Win. There aren't enough white voters for GOP to win. And so, you know, in this particular article, it's talking about how Donald Trump is reaching out to blacks and Hispanics. Let that sink in. And we know (laughs) he's reaching out to black and Hispanics after all the shit he's talked and that's why I have the title of Don't Follow the Judas Goat, okay? And so what a Judas Goat is, you know, is usually a goat, you know, because most people don't realize goats are very, very smart animals. And so what they do is they take a trained goat, they train it, and they train that goat to go and associate with, you know, the cattle or the sheep. And so then, you know, it builds that, you know, relationship, that trust. And so when it's time for, you know, when they want to put the cattle or the sheep on the truck, you know, the goat starts walking, and so the cattle or the sheep follow the goat. And, you know, they're easily led up on the truck, of the truck. And when it's time to lead these cattle or sheep to slaughter, what happens is the goat, you know, leads them to the stall, but then there's a side door that the goat is trained to go through. Why? Because that goat, that Judas goat life will be spared, whereas the cattle and the sheep 
are then ushered through another gate, probably on the right side, and then they're slaughtered. You know, so, you know, when you hear people say, yeah, leading the sheep to slaughter, that's basically what that is. And so that Judas goat is a trained animal to mislead sheep and cattle. So I know some of you are like, you know, so where are you going with this, Kim? All right, where I'm going with this is Donald Trump is reaching out to a number of black, Latino, you know, pastors and preachers. And some of them are taking the bait. And what's happening is they're being played. And so, you know, what's interesting is this week when Ben Carson made a huge, huge mistake. Well, it wasn't a mistake as far as I'm concerned. I'm glad he said it. But mm, I don't think that's going to end well for him. He stated that Donald Trump promised him a position, and that's why he endorsed Donald Trump. And for those that are not familiar, that is illegal. Donald Trump can't can't promise anybody anything. And so, you know, what's interesting is, you know, there are some black pastors that are falling for this. And, you know, I was tweeting at Paula White Monday asking her, because she endorsed Donald Trump. Joel Osteen, he didn't take it that far. He didn't endorse Donald Trump, but, you know, he likes Donald Trump. He says that Donald Trump has a humble heart. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, a number of black preachers fell in line with that, you know. And so, um, you know, I was tweeting at Paula White Monday night, which, of course, I received no response. And I was asking her, how can she look her congregation in the eye, especially black women and girls? Because we all know that the majority of church goers and church supporters are black women. And one day those those black girls will be black women and they're being trained. And so, you know, I'm looking and, you know, members, you know, because, you know, former without wall members that went over to New Destiny Christian Center. See, I, I finally got that together. I couldn't remember the name of the church last week, but I knew it had Destiny in it. But, you know, NDCC members, how can you allow this to happen? I've been telling you guys, sit on your money. Sit on your wallets. And not only with Paula White or Joe Osteen, I'm talking about across the board. I mean, even here in Chicago with these pastors that sided with Rauner, the the Republican governor, Meeks, Trotter, Brooks, sit on your money, people. Don't give them any money. Because what a lot of you all don't realize is that you have the power. Now, they get up in that pulpit and they try to intimidate folks, telling you, you know, don't, you know, touch not thine anointed. Look, let me let me break that down for you. With that particular passage 
in the Bible. It's not talking about telling the truth about a pastor. It's talking about physical harm. You owe it to yourselves and your children and your community to speak truth to power. And see, those people have no power without their members. They have no power without your money. And in a roundabout way, I can't prove this, and again, this is just my opinion. You know, have these people made promises to Donald Trump that they will get their people out there to vote for him? So what do they get in return? These are things that you all need to talk about and you need to think about. This is not being done by happenstance. This is strategic. And Donald Trump needs a certain percentage of Hispanics, Latinos, Chicanos, and blacks to win. Medgar Evers' brother endorsed Trump. So where where has he been all these years? You know, and so guys... I'm telling you, you know, they're playing Jedi mind tricks with you about, you know, their stances on abortion, their stances on the LGBTQ community, you know, all of that. If they wanted to make change, it would have been made a long time ago. That is a sales pitch to you guys. And I need for you all to understand how this works. For those that are not familiar I would strongly encourage you to go and look up faith-based initiatives. And what was so interesting about that is when Barack Obama was running for office, he stated that he was going to basically take that program off the table. Mind you, George Bush is the one who created faith-based initiatives. And when President Obama was elected to office, you know, he, you know, had meetings with black preachers, and then all of a sudden faith-based initiatives was no longer being taken off the table. As a matter of fact, there was a czar named to to oversee that, which was, you know, interesting in and of itself. But you need to pay attention. Pay attention. Question your pastor. You have that right. And it doesn't matter. I know some of you are like, I don't want him or her to get up in a pulpit and talk about me. They talk about you any damn way. Trust me, I haven't been around enough of these pastors and preachers. They talk shit about you whether they're in the pulpit or not. This I know for a fact. So, again, guys, you know, don't follow the Judas goat. I'm telling you. Because look at the things that, you know, Donald Trump has been saying about people of color. You know, so when I was tweeting at Paula White Monday, and then on Tuesday I was tweeting at Joel Olstein and Paula, you know, I included articles, you know, and articles in which, um, you know, they gave examples of the misogyny, the sexism, the racism, so on and so forth of Donald Trump. How can you see these things? How can you read these things and still endorse this man? They have to be getting something out of it. And then they get in the pulpit to convince you 
to vote with this so-called man or woman of God. Come on now. Donald Trump couldn't even get, you know, (laughs) it was like two Colossians instead of, you know, I'm like, come on, guys. Come on, you all know he doesn't know this stuff, and he doesn't care. You know, and so what's interesting is, you know, because I talked about it, and I posted it on my wall before, but I'll do it again, talking about how Donald Trump is the main man for white evangelicals. And so, you know, now he's he's reaching out to black evangelicals. But in regards to the white evangelicals, again, and I agree with that article, you know, quite a bit, that, you know, white Christianity is basically a smokescreen for white supremacy. Just go back and think about it. You know, when we were dealing with, you know, a lot of these riots in which, you know, they killed a lot of black people and chased them out of their neighborhoods and stole their land and kicked them out of office, you know, especially in Wilmington, that was an insurrection. And so basically, you know, when when the government or, you know, the powers that be, the local governments, when they would decide that it was time for the black folk to leave and, and to come out and get their punishment, where do you think the first place they went? They would go to the church, and they would post those edicts on the church doors. And the pastors would lead, lead them around and show them where the black people live. And then tell them, I see you, come on out. You know, and even now to this day, you know, when we think about some of, you know, the problems that we see as as humanists um, with some of these churches, there's a lot of racism behind it. You know, they say the most segregated hour in America is on Sundays. That came from Martin Luther King Jr. And um, so the whole thing is, like I said, very, very interesting. You need to go back and you need to read and you need to understand this history. Because, guys, you know, this is serious. This is very serious. And, you know, one of the pastors that, you know, I had some correspondence with, um, huh, you know, the whole thing is interesting because when I went to look at his um, Twitter page, and let me see, here's his, no, it wasn't that guy. It was, because um, I know I put it here, because I don't memorize that type of stuff, but um, Parsons. So, yeah, you know, he, well, we didn't go back and forth. He responded to me twice. And the first response was about believe on the Lord Jesus Christ back there. And then the second response was, um, you know what, I'm not even going to you know, try to guess. I don't even really remember, but you can go and see it on Twitter. I think he was talking about, no, I know he was talking about racism. Forgive me. It's my own tweets, right? And... Um, you know, he was talking about, you know, racism, and then I responded with information about the FHA and, you know, how, you know, the government, you know, sanctioned and sponsored racism, especially during the New Deal, because, you know, we've talked about it, about how some of these very wealthy suburban enclaves, how they surround the inner city. But he never said anything else after that. I think he probably knew better 
But, you know, I'm not done yet. So <laughs> we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things. And so what's interesting is now they're, you know, um, appealing to these pastors. And I remember when Paula White was setting up a meeting between, you know, pastors and Donald Trump. And so, you know, they invited, you know, a bunch of pastors to a meeting in New York. And, you know, the Trump people tried to say that it was a meeting of pastors who endorsed Donald Trump. And so um, what's interesting is, you know, a few of those pastors were like, oh, no, (laughs) we are not, you know, endorsing Donald Trump. They were just going there to hear what he had to say. And so it was interesting, you had pastors like Darrell Scott or Daryl Scott, and, you know, he's from Cleveland, Ohio. I wonder what his thoughts are on McGinty being ousted from office. And so basically, um, you know, with this next meeting, Trump invited like 25 pastors and to come to Trump Tower for an announcement. Okay, and it it was interesting because, you know, even with this Pastor Scott, he said he was skeptical initially about Donald Trump. And it's just interesting because he ended up endorsing him, I believe. I have to go and, you know, look that up. But, you know, according to this article, that is pretty much what happened. And so it's it's. Guys, go and look this up. You know, there really is no justification for them to support this man who sat there and, you know, basically he was endorsing that, that um, you know, talented 10th bullshit. So he said 10% of black people are great, 20% are good, and the rest are trash. Interesting. And these pastors, whether they're black or white, that have predominantly black congregations, are you co-signing that? Because that's what I see. So, you know, when I'm tweeting at these people, you know, I'm just asking questions. And that's the hashtag for that, I-J-A-Q. Hashtag I-J-A-Q. And I'm going to be wrapping that up this week, you know, and it's under the People of Color Beyond Faith Twitter account. And so, and I'm going to be retweeting it from Black Freethinkers. I'm going to start doing that. But, again, you know, it's interesting because this Pastor Scott said, I've never been afraid to tell him that there is a discomfort that exists between him and black America. The best way to cure that is through the black church, through black pastors. That's where I'm trying to work. Now, listen to what he said. The best way to cure that is through the black church, through black pastors, which means he they're trying to control the narrative. Anyone who tells you that you must give them your total 100% loyalty and support and not work with or not support other people, there is that authoritarianism, which is why they like Donald Trump, some of these folks. You know, and when they tell you stuff like that, trust me, 
that is not a leader. You have a dictator. You have a tyrant. Why would someone demand 100% loyalty or 100% support? And if you have someone saying that to you and telling you to do as you're told, that, you know, you're not getting paid, you're not in this to think, let them think for you, you're in trouble if that's what you're following. And so, guys, you know, you need to go back and pay attention to this. Ask your pastors why. What are they receiving? Because trust me, they're receiving something. They've been promised something because they pretty much assume that they can control you and and influence you to do what they want you to do, which is what they've been training you for from the very beginning. You know, and so, see, this is where I get conflicted because I understand the purpose of the church, at least the purpose of the church originally. What is turned into now, you know, I, you know, I have no words. I can't, I can't explain that. I can't defend that. So again, guys, don't follow the Judas goat. Don't follow the Judas goat. You need to pay attention. You need to ask questions. You know, what are they going to get out of this? You know, um, it's just, it's it's interesting. Um, And so, again, in this article it says that they had two hours of policy discussion, prayer, and they were reading from Isaiah 45, which basically chronicles God's anointing Cyrus to rebuild Jerusalem. Guys, pay attention. Pay attention. You know, and the thing is, is that, like I said, they were being played. You know, all the photographs, you know, everybody was taking pictures with Donald Trump. It's interesting because the pastor Parsons, on his Twitter account, he was talking about how Donald Trump wants to make everyone in America rich. That includes, you know, black and brown and red and yellow people, right? And so what's so interesting about that is, like I said, I did the show, you know, the prosperity gospel of Donald Trump. You know, he is selling that same line that you get from these megachurches and wannabe megachurches. God wants you to be rich. Now Donald Trump wants you to be rich. Catching on yet? And so it was it was interesting because, you know, for that original meeting, you know, it says they had between 35 and 50 pastors, you know, that showed up. And some of them were quite angry that um, Donald Trump was, you know, manipulating the headlines, stating that these pastors were going to endorse him you know, when they had only agreed to meet up with him. And so it was a woman out of Detroit, Michigan, Bishop Corletta Vaughn. Um, she, she was not happy 
you know, she supports Hillary Clinton, and so basically, you know, she was saying that it was false advertisement that she would be endorsing Trump. And here's her quote, I never accepted Daryl's invitation to come, and suddenly I see my name on the flyer. There is no allegiance between the black church and the Trump campaign. That is a manipulation of the black church. Don't use me to say the black female is behind you. How about that? How about that? So, guys, I'm just saying, look at it. And she even says that she cautioned her friend, Mr. Scott, or Pastor Scott, to be careful, you know, because, you know, she believes that this may backfire on, you know, that particular pastor and, and you know, some of these other pastors, you know, and some of them are getting backlash from their congregation, from their parishioners, as they should. And keep doing that. Keep putting pressure on them. Do it. Because, no, this is just this, wow. So just pay attention, guys. I mean, seriously. You know, I'm very, very concerned about this. You know, and it's just really, you know, um, it's incredible. It's incredible. I'm just, you know, when Ben Carson stated that Donald Trump promised him a position, that right there could put them both in jail. You're breaking federal law. He can't promise anyone a position, not legally anyway, just like he can't promise, you know, these particular pastors and preachers anything, not legally. So, you guys, you need to start asking questions. You know, the um, Pastor Parsons, you know, in his Twitter feed, he was talking about how Donald Trump was going to help communities of color, in particular the black community, open businesses and create their own jobs and opportunities. How many times are we going to fall for this same old song and dance? You know, I'm wondering, do you mean he is going to help you open businesses and to become wealthy in your race to become a mega church pastor? I don't know. I'm just asking questions. Help me to understand this, Pastor Parsons. So, you know, <laughs> Come on and, you know, get out here and take a look around. See what's happening around you because they need the black vote. Don't don't ever let them trick you into believing. And, oh, yeah, for those that are interested, Dr. Parsons is out of Richmond, Virginia. And so, you know, I just found the whole thing absolutely unbelievable. The accolades that, you know, he bestowed upon Donald Trump. And, you know, I'll give you one quote. He says, people ask me, why are you endorsing Trump? Well, in my opinion, he's the best and the only one that can beat Hillary Clinton. We've got to win. And one thing about Donald Trump is that he's a winner. He knows how to create wealth. As a black minister, we're right in the inner city. And I'll tell you, we need jobs. We need employment. We need businesses. And who better can help us ourselves than Donald Trump? 
He went on to say, I personal believe, personally believe that this is a movement. I personally believe that we're in a situation now where this country called America is going to come back and be made great again. And so on his Twitter feed, if you go and look, you'll see he's talking about wealth transference. Now, that's a scripture that a lot of churches use, basically saying the wealth of the wicked will be transferred to those who believe, you know, on the Lord Jesus Christ, so on and so forth. So what they're doing is, you know, they're trying to find a way to justify this. They're trying to find, and it's just, the whole thing is just mind-boggling. And so, you know, he said, when I met him, him being Donald Trump, I had the feeling that this is a humble man. It's not the image that we see out in public. This guy is a humble guy and has a heart for the people. Hmm. Hmm. So, again, I'll give you this last quote, and it says, he was there opening to, you know, he was there opening to our advice and wanted to hear from us. He wanted to get counsel from pastors. He asked for for prayer, and that's powerful. Guys, what does the scripture say? And they will make merchandise of you. They're selling you to the highest bidder. And I need for you all to go out and read and to understand what's happening. You know, go and pay attention and see what's happening. Call these people to question. You know, just, it's horrible. This is horrible. He needs the black and Latino vote, period. And he will say anything he has to say to get that support. And the only reason why he's running for president is because um, ha, President Obama hurt his little feelings. You know, what I find interesting is Jamal Bryant even, you know, made a comment and, and called them prostitutes for Trump. Don't let black pulpit become a pole. You know what pole is, the stripper pole, right? So, um, <laughs> guys, you know, wow. And so, you know, Daryl Scott responded to Jamal Bryant. If Trump called black preachers prostitutes on a pole, the entire nation would be in an uproar, you know. And then he said, um, Pastor Scott, he said, for respectable preachers to be called prostitutes on a pole is very insulting, demeaning, and misogynistic, to say the least. (laughs) And so, you know, guys, I mean, you know, of all people to say something like that, Jamal Bryant, who's trying to position himself to be the next Martin Luther King. I'm just saying. You need to question all of them. And you need to question their motives. You know, how much was your endorsement? How much did it cost you? But more so, you know, how much did it cost the pastor? How much does it cost the members of that church? And even more importantly than that, how much does it cost the community? 
Because you got to remember, these particular nonprofit organizations, these churches, they own a lot of wealth, um, a lot of real estate, and they're very wealthy. Some of them, and they pay no taxes on that. So that money comes from your neighborhoods. As you complain about the conditions on the street, all the potholes, as you complain about the school buildings not having air conditioning or not having heat in some winters, and, you know, the 20-year-old books your kids are learning from, as you complain about those things, you also need to be looking in-house. And that's not only, you know, the religious 501c3s. You have secular ones out there as well. That's what they want. They want the same opulent lifestyle that a lot of these megachurch pastors have. It's the same scam. I just need for you guys to think about this. So, you know, it's important. Go read, read, read. You know, and, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, with some of these pastors, you know, especially Pastor Cousins, he's he's made some very damning and damaging comments about, you know, these protesters and activists and organizers, particularly, you know, Black Lives Matter. You know, when they when they went to the Trump, you know, conference, and, you know, how some of the Trump people, you know, the, the people that support him, you know, was roughing up people of color. And, you know, it's just interesting, you know, about, you know, some of the things that are happening. And, you know, and it wasn't Cousins that made the comment. It was Trump that made the comment. So I want to make sure I clarify that. But, you know, apparently, you know, Cousins asked him about it. But, guys... This is horrible, but like I said, you know, he needs the black and Latino vote. You need to pay attention to it, so does Hillary. See, it's not just the GOP, it's not just the Republicans that don't have enough white votes. Neither do the Democrats. Can't talk about one without talking about the other. And, you know, that was what was amazing about Bernie Sanders and his his you know, his elevation and, you know, how quickly he went from being 3% to running neck and neck with Hillary Clinton, you know, because it was interesting when the Black Lives Matter people, you know, first started showing up at the Bernie Sanders rallies. It wasn't just all Black Lives Matter people. Again, you have a lot of different organizations out there. And so I think it's important for you all to understand that because one thing that the media has been doing, which is unfair, anytime a black person does anything, now they're tying it to Black Lives Matter. So you have to be discerning. So anyway, when Trump, I'm sorry, when Sanders was, you know, basically, you know, being confronted by these, you know, activists, you know, at first, all of America, especially some of the white progressive liberals, they were all up in arms, and they were saying that our movement was going to be, you know, um, destroyed or it was going to be hurt by, you know, these actions. See how quickly that conversation turned around? So now the rhetoric has gone from, 
you know, you're crazy for, you know, um, forcing him to talk about these issues to now is if you don't vote for him, you're voting against your own, you know, interests like poor whites. So now they're using that same language. And last week I talked about how it's a lose-lose situation for black people in general and Latino people, that if Bernie loses, you're going to have, you know, white folks, progressive, you know, liberals out here saying that we don't know what we're doing and we don't know what's good for us and we're voting against our own interests. And then if Hillary loses, you're going to have people out here, look at all of what the Clintons have done for you people and your community. And like I said last week, yeah, put all the black people in jail with this so-called, you know, crime bills and war on drugs and the deregulation of the mortgage industry and deregulation of the market stock exchange, you know, all of that. You know, the Clintons did all of that for us. You know, we had the mortgage bubble pop. A lot of black and Latino wealth was lost. You need to go back and read up on that. And there's a lot more to it. You know, you have NAFTA, you know, which shipped the jobs away. That was Bill Clinton. Thank you. And Hillary Clinton has already stated that she's not going to go back and fix you know, many of the glaring errors that her husband created. So I know this puts us in a really precarious situation because they've pretty much anointed Hillary as the winner of this race, you know, for presidency. And so, um, you know, but again, we want you to go out there and vote because, you know, these polls mean nothing. Who would have thought that Bernie Sanders would have won Michigan. I was surprised myself. So you can't really go by these polls and these numbers for the most part. But, um, guys, they need our votes. This is why you see them jumping, you know, through fire to get to our communities. And then when they're elected, they're going to ignore us and throw us under the bus like they do in many communities, you know, and we've already heard, you know, heard me talk about the LGBTQ community and the feminist community and the secular community. It's the same shit because, you know, this this oppression thing that we have, that shit is hard. They don't like being oppressed. So they push for their rights, but they need our support in order to push some of those through. That's why I say justice or just us. In many cases, it's just us. And when I say just us, I'm talking about the white people that benefit. Because the thing is, is that, you know, in these hard times that we're living in, in this great recession, you know, you know a lot of these white people are accustomed to having certain privileges and entitlements. And once it's found out that they're part of one of these marginalized groups, whether LGBTQ or feminist or what have you, or non-believer, then they get oppressed for that. And they don't like that. They want all of their privileges and entitlements. 
but they didn't want to point the finger at us and and make comments about us being lazy and not wanting to work. And it's just so interesting because ever since we decided not to work for free, we've been a problem. I mean, go and do a Google, do a Google search on the Negro problem or the black problem in America to get a better understanding of what's happening out here. So, guys, you know, I'm going to post this article talking about um, how Donald Trump had his little feelings hurt by President Obama, and that's why, you know, he's running for president. Because what you're seeing with this, this, this little movement under Trump, you know, somebody eloquently called it the White Lives Matter movement. That is what you're seeing. That is what you're seeing. So it's interesting. And then, of course, they're going to blame the protesters for the violence. And that's not even the case. They should be able to go out there and protest in peace without Trump supporters running up on them and pushing them and yelling at them and spitting on them. You know, you got to remember um, when John Conyers was walking, you know, it was a bunch of, you know, Congress people walking through this angry white crowd, and some of the white people spit on him. Now, I'm not sure about any of you guys, but if someone spit on me, I think we're getting ready to go blow for blow. But it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, pay attention. But, you know, more so with this particular article, it's called How Trump Happened. And this is on Slate. And so it says here, it's not just anger over jobs and immigration. White voters hope Trump will restore the racial hierarchy appended by Barack Obama. So, guys, this this is interesting. And Jamel Bowie wrote this. It was, this is the black man. So um, it's... <laughs> Is is interesting about what's happening in this country. You know, they want their country back, meaning, you know, they really want all the people of color to sit down, shut up, and take what's given to them. You know, and they don't like, you know, this oppression thing. They don't like not having all of their privileges and entitlements. And so, you know, and, and what I find even more interesting is, you know, you have white people that are on link, you know, food stamps and have Section 8 and a number of other programs, but for some odd reason, they think their programs are different than the ones that black people are on. And then they also don't realize that for, that, you know, affirmative action was created for white people, and they benefit the most from it, and, and the white women benefit the absolute most from it. But they don't know this for some odd reason or they think theirs is different. I don't know how this type of thinking works. It's the same shit. And white people benefit more from it than black people. It's always been that way. And so, you know, they want to talk about kicking, you know, people of color off of welfare and drug testing them. How about this? So we talk about you know, corporate welfare, and, you know, we all have examples of that and how all of that came to be, you know, the too big to fail types of corporations and banks and 
all of that. You know, I personally was very surprised when U.S. Steel went under. You know, when when that happened, I was floored. But anyway, needless to say, you know, moving forward on this. But we need to talk about another type of welfare out there. When people are elected to be a senator and House of Representatives, you know, president, all they have to do is win one term. And they receive their salaries for the rest of their lives. If that's not welfare, I don't know what is. Maybe we need to change that. Then we won't have as many problems. You know, financially, we could take the money that we're paying these people in salaries and for their Cadillac insurance plans and, you know, all the little perks that they have. Why must former presidents have their own, you know, Air Force Ones? Spirit Airlines will be happy to have them. Maybe we need to take those perks away. And while we at it, drug test them too. That's just me. I'm just asking questions. I'm just posing a couple of scenarios because, you know, I'm concerned about the deficit and how we're going to make some changes. And, you know, I feel that these leaders should fall on their sword. They should They should start first in addition to not receiving their salary and and their benefits for the rest of their lives. You know, maybe they should take a pay cut. Oh, you don't like that? Well, why not? I've never worked a job that, you know, I worked for a year and then I get the salary for the rest of my life if I don't work there anymore. How does that work? Who else has a job like like that out there? None of my friends or cousins or people that I know. So, you guys, you need to start questioning these things. You know, so, yeah, you're accustomed to privileges and, you know, entitlements. You know, when they start leveling the playing field and now you have to compete with, you know, people of color on the same playing field, now it feels like oppression. One of the things that I learned when I worked in academia as well as corporate is, you know, again, you have these positions and they'll promote certain people up and out the way. So I've had white colleagues who, you know, should have been terminated a long time ago. What they do is they promoted them up and out the way. So now these are the managers, a.k.a. the overseers to keep the rest of us in line and working. Why? Because we know how to do the job. We know how to do it efficiently. We know how to do it well. And for the most part, you know, we don't rock the boat. And then it becomes that particular manager's or overseer's job to keep us in line and to make him and upper management look good. And so you got to pay attention to all of these things. And, and, it's just it's absolutely amazing, you know, how, you know, these systems, you know, these unspoken systems are in place. You know, if you complain, if you're a woman and you complain about sexual harassment, what's interesting is in many cases the harasser doesn't get in trouble, but the woman does. 
you know, next thing you know, you're on probation or on a performance improvement plan or security is walking you out because they found reasons, created reasons to terminate you. Same thing with people of color when they complain about racism. You know, one of the, you know, most glaring examples of this in the past couple of years, you've had black police officers complaining about the racism in their departments, especially after, you know, the Ferguson, you know, um, um, incident there, you know, and those black police officers, black and Latino police officers, were told that if they keep complaining about racism on the job, in the police stations, that they would be fired and reprimanded and or reprimanded. So, you know, guys, we're not making this up. You can go out, look it up, look it up. You know, and just what's so interesting is, you know, you got these people, now you got black people talking about make America great again. When has America ever been great for black people? I don't know. Remember that little thing called slavery? And then after slavery, you know, there was this big federal program called Jim Crow. I don't think we did too well under that either. You know, you had the black codes. No, when I talk to my relatives, you know, when they talk to me about it, it doesn't sound like some type of upwardly bound program to me. Maybe I missed something. When we had Reconstruction, well, that wasn't meant for us either. And neither was the real, I mean, the New Deal. You know, they let a few prosper. That's about it. I mean, go back and look at the arguments and the discussions between W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. This is nothing new. See, with Booker T. Washington, he took the stance that we had to prove ourselves, prove ourselves worthy while he was living, you know, in luxury. And he was living with his celebrity and his wealth but telling the rest of us to pretty much pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And you have a lot of blacks out here now that believe in bootstraps or bootstrapping. And so it's interesting, you know, just looking at this. But, you know, I wonder, you know, when Donald Trump is saying making America great again, he's saying make America white again. I don't know. You tell me. And then you got some of these people out here, like I say, doing the fetch and step, the shuck and jive, genuflecting and kissing his ass. And telling others to join in the conga line. How does that work? And see, what's interesting is you have some of these black pastors and preachers and even some of the white ones that have black congregations, you know, you got them endorsing these folks. But in many of some of these churches, especially some of these mega churches, you know, where is your Feed the Hungry program? Where are your, 
you know, Christian closet programs, meaning, you know, clothing and, 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 you know, classes, teaching people how to use Word, classes, helping them or teaching them how to update their resumes in a new format, you know, um, jobs, outreach programs. Where is that? Because I've talked about it time and time again, the Republicans are trying to push these so-called entitlement programs off of the federal register, and they're trying to take those programs and put them in the church and make them the church, you know, responsibilities. The church is not equipped to deal with that. They don't have the knowledge, the know-how, or the resources to deal with that 100%, which means it's going to fail, which is what they want, which means we gave them a chance, they couldn't do it, and they want to take those away. It's imperative that we have social safety nets in this country. And so, you know, what's interesting is with, you know, Pastor Parsons there, when I was going through his Twitter feed, you know, he gave the, you know, the general, you know, definition for socialism. And that's, I think he tweeted that at me too. But, you know, what's interesting about that whole thing is, a lot of these people do not understand socialism, nor do they understand communism. And for those that want to make the argument about in God we trust, being on our money as well as under God is in, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance, all I say is do some, some searching and some, you know, um, research on your own. That wasn't always there. So do a, do a Google search on McCarthyism and under God, you know, under God and in, in God we trust. You'll see that that was put on the money and, and factored into the pledge, you know, within the lifetimes of many of our parents and grandparents. Hasn't been on there very long. You know, go back to the 50s. And this is when we had that red scare, the communism scare in this country. And what's interesting is, you know, if you ask many of these people who are upset about socialism and communism, they don't even really know what it is. You know, and what's so interesting is that, you know, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, you know, they were embracing socialism not communism, but socialism. And if you go back and read up, you know, on some of the people that, you know, I absolutely adore, like Hubert Henry Harrison, you know, go back and read up. Understand this history. It's not just white people who are caught up in a history that they don't understand. So are blacks. And so it's important, guys. You know, I want you to be armed with this information. I want you to be able to stand and have a conversation, you know, even with a Trump, you know, supporter, and be able to tell them why and who and where this comes from and how it's going to impact the entire community. Because you have to realize that some of these people are selfish hedonists who only care about themselves and their well-being. They don't give a shit about you or me. And they've proven that. What did Maya say? She said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. 
so, guys, you know, when, you know, Donald Trump was, you know, playing or feigning ignorance with David Duke and a Klan, talking about he didn't know enough about them. Come on with these word games. And you all are, this is just absolutely ridiculous. When Barack Obama was elected president, David Duke left America, and he was pretty much kicked out of almost every civilized, you know, Western country in Europe. It was the funniest shit ever because they didn't want his brand of rhetoric and ideology there. You know, if you go and you read read up on France and, you know, especially France and how they deal with their racial issues, you know, they're trying to stay far away from, you know, the American style of dealing with racism. And there is a lot of racism in Europe. You know, let's not get that twisted. But, um, you know, for him, and, you know, I'm looking at these black you know, pastors and these white pastors with predominantly black, you know, congregations. How do you explain that? I'm just asking questions. So, again, you know, you all can use the hashtag IJAQ. I'm just asking questions because um, I'm going to be asking a whole bunch of damn questions between now and this election. And I'm still going to be asking questions, you know, afterwards, especially, you know, (laughs) if one of these Republicans win. So, you know, again, get out there. And, you know, I found it interesting personally when Donald Trump was um, basically stating that he may have to send some of his supporters to, you know, the Bernie Sanders rallies. And then he made a comment about how if, you know, he's not the GOP nominee, that his people may riot. Now, you know, I've said that on the show a couple of times that I believe that, you know, there may be fights or, you know, some type of outbreak at their convention in Cleveland, you know, when they, you know, crown the new nominee And I also stated that I believe that it may, you know, fall out into the streets. And Donald Trump knows that that's possible, too. But see, what's happening is when he says things like that, that's not necessarily discouraging his people, you know, to refrain from that type of behavior. Now, had that been us, you know, we'd have the military on every block. You know, and not only just, you know, the U.S. military, I'm talking about the police force, too. You know, they've been militarized. And so, guys, like I said, just pay attention. Again, I do believe in the Second Amendment. I do believe in, you know, bearing arms, the right to bear arms. And I strongly advise people to get their, you know, their firearm identification cards. And then also get your conceal and carry license and then get down to the range in practice. You need to know how to shoot it. You need to know how to clean it. You need to know how to store it so your two-year-old will not shoot you by mistake. Okay? So, you know, it's important because, you know, if he's, you know, hinting that his people are going to go out, trust me, 
They ain't tearing up their neighborhoods. They're going to put together a caravan and have a militia walk through our neighborhoods. I'm telling you. So, you guys, you need to pay attention. You need to pay attention to what's happening. But you also need to be getting prepared for whatever. It may not happen. And if it doesn't happen, I'm happy. But either way it goes, you know, you need to be prepared for whatever may come our way. And you need to go out, you need to research, you need to study, because like I said, they've studied us. You know, and they know exactly how we're going to respond. And history has replayed itself. It's the same bullshit over and over again. Keep telling you guys, the only thing that's changed are the names and maybe the locations, but it's the same game. And right now it's a losing game for us. So it's it's very important that you guys, you know, know how this works and know what's going on and in the role that you play. So you know, I just, you know, again, like I said, you know, advise you guys to go on and be yourselves, enjoy your lives, live it, but understand what's going on around you, understand that a lot of the things that we're seeing and that we're dealing with is not a it's not a coincidence. And so, you know, I just, you know, again, want to keep you guys encouraged. You know, live your life, but understand what's happening around you and understand how it not only affects you, but it affects the people around you, not only your friends and family, but your neighbors as well. You know, and people have heard me say on the show that, you know, it's it's important that I make sure that Pookie up the street has food. Because, see, we live in the same neighborhood, and I'd rather give it to you than to have you try to come and take it. See, that's the issue. When people try to come and take things from me, and, you know, a number of other people feel the same way, now we got a problem. How are you going to try to take something that doesn't belong to you or something that we put together and you decide that you want it all for yourself. It doesn't work like that. And so, you know, it's interesting. So, you know, um, <laughs> you know, again, guys, I just want you all to go and pay attention and go out. You know, tweet at these pastors. Tweet at them. Ask them why. If you have family members that attend these churches, you need to call them up and ask them why. Why are they allowing their pastor to back this xenophobe? Why? You know, you have some people saying that Donald Trump is up there playing a part. No, no. What we what we see happening with Donald Trump and his white supporters is, you know, this has always been here. It's just been under the surface, you know, and now it's coming to the top. Now we're able to see it. It was always there. We always knew it was there. 
We always felt it. And this is why I get on the case of progressive liberals, because, you know, they want to tell us that it's a figment of our imagination and how we think everything is racist. And and these are the same ones saying, no, not yet. It's not time yet. You're not ready. No, we've been ready. You all need to ask why these particular, you know, whites, some of the some of the progressive liberals, why they're trying to hold us back. Also, you need to ask why they never talk about the racism in, you know, progressive white liberal circles. It's there. You know, and so, (laughs) you know, guys, I just find it amazing. We owe it to ourselves to understand and to know these things. And so, you know, um, for you all, we have an archive. And I want you guys to go out and listen to some of the shows. And, um, you know, some really good ones out there. And we've been getting some really, really good numbers. So I know you're listening. And I know that, um, you know, some of you guys have, um, you know, been catching up. And that's a wonderful thing. So, you know, it's, it's a lot, you know, that's put out there, and, um, you know, it's a lot that's put out there, and it's a lot of information, and like I said, we have some new listeners, so for those that want to understand about the black vote, how it switched from Republican to Democrat, go back and look up the New Deal, and that was between 1933 and 1938, it's important that you understand, because that's only really two generations away. Well, it depends on who you're talking to. So it may be three or four generations away, depending on, you know, your family. But um, go back and look at the New Deal, and then you'll see how it crossed over. It's, it's important that you guys know how that worked. And so, um, you know, it's just amazing. So let's see here. Yeah, 1923, let's see here. I want to make sure I give you all this information, you know, when it comes down to the Pledge of Allegiance and, you know, when that changed. Because there were several changes that were made to it, but the last change came in 1954, and that's when they put the words under God into the pledge. So, you know, you need to go and look that history, you know, up because it's important, you know, for you all to know this. And also um, McCarthyism and how all of this plays out. And we've talked about, you know, how fear is an industry and, you know, how it, you know, just look at the commercials. Everybody want an ADT alarm, you know, I've fallen and I can't get up button then. You know, the recordings of the Dobermans when someone rings your doorbell. It's just a number of things, you know, identity theft, all of that, you know, it's, it's important for you guys to uh, understand that. And so, like I said, go back to the 50s, you know, um, you know, with in God we trust when that was added to the money 
you know, that was July 30th, 1956, President Eisenhower. You know, so um, it went from 1957 to 1966 when it was added to paper money. So go back, look at this, and, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because the first time it appeared was in 1864, and it was on a two-cent coin. So I know some people are going to say, you know, it happened way before the 50s. Yes, in some cases, yes. So, you know, it was added to the paper money you know, um, in 1957 through 66, and it was signed into law in, on July 30th, 1956. So it's important that you guys know this and that you understand it, where it came from, why that change happened, you know, and, and you know, it's just history is a weapon, you guys. And, you know, I'm trying to give you enough ammunition to defend yourself and to be able to stand up because that was one of the worst feelings in the world when I would have some of these conversations with people and I didn't have all the facts that I needed to back up my argument, but I knew I was right. So it's just, you know, this is one of the reasons why I read so much and why I'm encouraging others to read and to get out there and, you know, to talk to people. You know, there are ways that we can have a civil discourse. And so it's important that you guys know that. But as I say, you know, today's title was Don't Follow the Judas Goat, and we got plenty of them in our communities. You need to question everything you need to question their motives, you know, question what they're going to get out of the deal, but most importantly, question if they've already promised you, you know, to, to these other people. Are they leading you to slaughter? Because trust me, they're going to try to make sure them and their immediate family are taken care of and are spared. Many of them don't give a shit about anybody else. That's in the pulpit and out of the pulpit. And, you know, and that's what I find so disheartening because you have these pastors and these preachers who have the ear and the pulse of the community in their hands. And they have not utilized that power to make positive changes. This is one of the reasons why you'll hear me saying that all nonprofit organizations should be taxed. Even if it's at the commercial level, they need to be taxed. In addition to that, everything that they do needs to be open. You need to be open books. We need to know how much real estate they own, how many businesses that they've started under the ministry. We need to know how much money that they're taking in, the revenue. We need to know their overhead expenses. Is it a top-heavy type of budget? You know, because if you're bringing in, you know, let's say, you know, $10 million a year, and so you know it's not a mega church I'm talking about because it's only $10 million a year. But if $10 million a year is coming in, and out of that $10 million, $4 million are administrative costs, which means salaries for everybody, and most of the people are willing workers. It's just a few of the people at the top of the heap 
that are getting these, you know, extravagant salaries. And, you know, I'll hear preachers say, well, I don't take a salary from the church. I got my own ministry. But you sell your ministry's goods within that church. And, you know, many people are sycophants, and they're going to do whatever they have to do and say whatever they have to say to be in a pastor's good graces, to make it seem as though they're supporting that particular pastor. They ain't read that shit. Trust me, I know. Half of them can't even tell me what the hell you preached about when I see them the next day on that Monday. Hell, some of them can't even tell you on Sunday if I run into them at the soul food restaurant. The church has become a social club. And you know what? That's fine. Because the same thing is happening on the other side of the fence. See, so that's one of the reasons why I stopped judging and started having more compassion. Because some of the people on the religious side, they don't know any better. But over on the secular side, you damn well know exactly what the fuck you're doing. Which, in my eyes, make you a horrible person. I have absolutely no respect for most of you. None. And so, you know, what I find interesting is, you know, don't follow the Judas goat. That can be in any situation, any scenario, human nature. There are some people that are so desperate to get out of their situation, so desperate to, you know, have celebrity or wealth or what have you, that they're willing to say and do anything and every day, everything to ingratiate themselves. themselves. And you need to pay attention. You need to pay attention. You need to question. And don't be afraid to question. And that's the thing that I find funny, is that there are some people out here who feel as though they should not be questioned or critiqued. I mean, what say you? So we need to pay attention to what's happening, and I say question everything in every area and aspect of your lives. Question it. Challenge it. They need that. And if a person has a problem with you challenging or critiquing them, then what are they hiding? Or better yet, why are you not prepared to deal with the onslaught that's coming your way? Because it's coming. Trust that. And so I just say, again, this is Kim with Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you one more time. I am here to challenge you to think and live for yourself. I challenge you to challenge these others. So, again, hashtag IJAQ for I'm just asking questions. We need to ask a lot of damn questions. Join me. Take care, everybody. Have a good week. See you next Sunday.